A message from the U.S. Department of Justice, National Crime Prevention Council, and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Views, opinions, and nature talk are not necessarily the views of talk to you, Jamila Production, and its sponsors. This is Nature Talk. Korea still possesses a number of nuclear weapons 
They still possess the intercontinental ballistic missiles that can hit the mainland of the United States. They're not giving up any of that. So this is a halt and a, frankly, reversible freeze-on testing. I think at the negotiating table, the Trump administration is going to have to get a lot more concessions out of North Korea before we can completely declare them having become denuclearized. Well, let's follow up on that, then. This comes, uh, you know, I should also mention, a week before the North Koreans, uh, North Koreans meet with the South Koreans, and then a month before that Trump meeting that you just talked about. So then what might uh, North Korea then expect in return for this? Oh, Chanel, I think they're going to ask that U.S. troops leave the Korean Peninsula. They're Ooh. probably going to ask for a suspension of American and South Korean military exercises. And at the end of the day, they're going to want relaxation of sanctions. All of those things are these things that the United States should be careful about giving to the North Koreans before they destroy their nuclear stockpiles. Jeremy, we know that uh, the Secretary of State nominee, Mike Pompeo, CIA director, he went uh, three weeks ago. They had this face-to-face -face with Kim, Kim Jong-un, a secret meeting. Um, do we think that there is a correlation between that meeting and this announcement? And, and is this a foreign policy win for the Trump administration? I think it's fair to say that the diplomacy by the Trump administration, including by Mike Pompeo, has produced this momentum. Whether it's ultimately a win, Craig, though, remains to be seen. All right, Jeremy Bash, uh, for us thank this morning there. Jeremy, thank you. Hello. Good evening, and welcome to Nation Talk. Tonight, will North Korea give up their nukes? And... Do we really need to trust North Korea on their word that they're, that they're reducing their nukes or suspending the nukes? And again, the question is, what's behind North Korea's decision to suspend nuclear tests? What's to help make sense of North Korea's statements and motivations in the upcoming summits, we turn to Jean Lee, director of the Korea program at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. She was also the former bureau chief of the Associated Press in Pyongyang. So let's first start talking a little bit about definitions here. There seems to be a different definition of denuclearization for the United States versus North Korea. What do they mean by it? For them, they've been talking about denuclearization for a long time, and they mean denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula not just them giving up their nuclear weapons, but the United States also removing its nuclear umbrella over the South Korean region as well as Northeast Asia. So they're not necessarily saying that they are going to stop all of their nuclear programs. It's just specific to the nuclear test site and the missiles at this point. Exactly. And we need to remember that even though this is such a dramatic statement, the North Koreans have said this before. It's not the first time they've agreed to suspend nuclear weapons and ballistic missile testing. Just a reminder, it was only six years ago that the North Koreans agreed with the United States to place a moratorium on this type of testing in exchange for significant aid and concessions. Mm -hmm. And then just a few weeks later, test launched a long-range rocket. Uh, and so that certainly, that deal fell apart. So it's not new. It may seem dramatic, but longtime North Korea watchers will tell you that we've heard this before. Well, how does this factor into North Korea's long-term plan? What we're seeing right now is really strategic messaging on the part of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, to his own people. What we saw with the news that came out of North Korea just the past day was 
a significant moment in the making of this North Korean leader. This is going to be a treatise that is going to go down in history in, in North Korea. And he's telling his people, listen, we are done with this phase of nuclear testing for now because I have done what I set out to accomplish, which was to prove to you that I can defend you with nuclear weapons that are proven to be a global threat and that means that makes us untouchable. So he's telling his people, not only are we untouchable because we've reached this point with our nuclear weapons program, but also that it makes us a world power, and we see that in the language in that treatise. It also positions him to sit down with the leaders of South Korea and the United States in a very different position than had he done this years ago. Uh, he is trying to portray himself as a rational world leader who embraces the concept of a nuclear weapons-free world. And so he'll win simply by sitting down at that table, even if he gets nothing out of it. Ashton, what are the costs for North Korea to continue a nuclear program? I mean, this is a very poor country. And this is partly why he's telling his people, look, I know that we've sacrificed a lot by pouring our meager resources into this extremely costly nuclear weapons program that has taken quite a toll economically, not only in terms of the cost, but in terms of sanctions as well. The North Koreans have been living with sanctions for decades, but they've certainly been stepped up. The elites of Pyongyang know that sanctions are going to start to take a significant bite mm -hmm. in their economy and their way of life. And so that's something that he's telling his people as well. I did this as an investment in our defense, and now I can step back from that and refocus those resources into the economy. All right, Jean Lee of the Wilson Center joining us from Washington. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hmm. Do we really trust North, North Korea on this? I mean, do we really? Uh, here's a real look inside Korea's DMZ. Watch the FIFA World Cup on Fox, and let Fox broadcast sponsor 23andMe help you find your team. Like troops heading into battle, North Koreans follow banners marching into work. Mobilization is a part of daily life in this militarized nation. Right now, we're on the main road heading south from Pyongyang towards the border between North and South Korea, an area known as the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone. The DMZ is anything but demilitarized. This barren road takes us to the ceasefire line that ended the brutal fighting of the Korean War in 1953. Today, a heavily fortified border with both sides constantly prepared for war. We're right here. Junior Lieutenant Colonel Nam Dong-ho is part of North Korea's standing army of more than one million, nearly three-quarters, stationed close to the DMZ. Nam calls it the most tense place on the planet. More than 60 years after the ceasefire, North and South Korea are still technically at war. This is where you used to negotiate with the Americans. Most Western historians say North Korea started the war. But here they teach a different version of history. America is the real culprit, he says, but still the Americans deny the truth. 
The tension is palpable as we approach the border. Is there a real danger here of something breaking out? Yes. Armed soldiers stand just feet from the border, the scene of occasional deadly violence in the years since the ceasefire. As we enter a building straddling the line between north and south, an ominous warning of an even bigger danger. The Americans have been threatening us with nuclear weapons, he says, since the days of the Korean War. So is that why North Korea continues to develop its own nuclear program? That's why we've equipped ourselves with nuclear weapons, he says, to counter the American nuclear threat. Nam points out, no country with a nuclear weapon has ever been attacked. A report leaked by the Wall Street Journal claims Chinese nuclear experts recently warned the U.S. They say Pyongyang now has 20 nuclear devices and is expected to double that number soon. North Korea also believed to possess long-range missile technology. If another major conflict breaks out between North Korea and the U.S., he says, America itself will become ground zero. A six-decade-old war, considered history by much of the world, still a very real part of life on the DMZ. A painful reminder of the region's violent past, tense present, and uncertain future. Will Ripley, CNN, along the demilitarized zone, North Korea. All right. Do we really trust? Do we really trust North Korea? I don't know if this is going to work or not, but I'm going to try it. What, do we really trust North Korea in a them saying they they going to stop the stockpile of nukes? One seven two four 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 twenty four forty four. Call ID number five 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 one nine pound. Hello, Mike. Mike. Yes, sir. How you doing? Hello, hello. And uh, do you really want to answer to that question you just asked? <laughs> Inquire mind. Just want to know. But you got to, but you got to ask anyway. I hear that, so you know the answer already. Yep. No. No. <laughs> and again, no. <laughs> after all these years, after what seventy, about seventy some years. No, wait a minute. Fifty-three. Oh wait, whoa, whoa, wait. Nineteen fifty-four, fifty-five. The 2050 years, wow, 50, 65. The this started in 50. Okay. It was over with in 54, something right. like that, 53. Nah, you ain't going to get no, no, no rest, brother, man. Nah, I'm looking, I mean... I heard about this. Uh oh. Okay, there you go. I heard about this earlier this week about the announcement. But I'm going. Hmm. Mhm. I said I don't, I don't know. I <laughs> really don't know about that. Because 
stepped away. Um, this character is, and the way he's been shooting off those nukes lately. And uh, hey, what's the what's the, uh, the the answer that he already got the stockpile and he's yeah. gonna get rid of them? Yeah, he he got stockpile. And so he, so there he said he's not gonna get rid of them. Huh? The testing doesn't mean a thing. Nope. That's just to, that's just to show off. Yeah. In other words, he can save money by not testing because he got to get the fuel and all that stuff. But you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So now he got the stockpile. So like, hey, I can make all kind of agreements you want. What else you want? Uh. Oh wait a minute. I keep cutting you want, you off. You want bologna with your bread, or you want some cheese with the bologna? <laughs> I mean, t- I don't know why are you. There you go. Okay, now stay. What happened? You having problem over there? Uh, yeah, you keep clicking off. All right, everybody hold on here. I'm having a little bit of trouble with this, what this, because I don't know what's going on. Let's take a break and, um, and come back. All right. give up their nukes, then I'll give up candy. I'll give up eating candy for a year. If they, if they, if they, they do. Yeah, right. This is Nation Talk. We'll be back. Curtis here for RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. What should you do to stop a friend from driving if they've been drinking? Answer, whatever it takes. Think before you drink. Designate before you celebrate. Choose a designated driver. Remember, friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata. And at Johnny and Friends, we are all about access. Yes, even to people with visual impairments. 
For years, Lisa did a remarkable job of translating our newsletters into Braille every month and then sending them out to 60 friends on our ministry list who are blind. Lisa's was a quiet, unheralded, yet remarkable service in the kingdom of Christ. But unfortunately, she recently lost her battle against cancer, and now she is home with the Lord. But I look forward to that day when I will stand next to her and hear the Savior say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, what a joy it'll be to see her service richly rewarded and to see the, quote, eyes of the blind unopened of all those she served so diligently. God is a tender spot for people who serve in a quiet and an unheralded way. Need some ideas on how you can serve that way among the disabled? Then visit us at johnnyandfriends.org. This is John Mayer for RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. On stage, it's fun to push the limits and see where it takes me. Off stage, it's a different story. Get behind the wheel of a car after you've been drinking and you risk causing a crash, hurting, or even killing someone. When you're enjoying a few drinks, know your limit and don't push it. Plan ahead and give up the keys. You'll make it a safer weekend for everyone. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. You're listening to the Jam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. Views and opinions of nature talk are not necessarily views of Talk Show, Jam Radio Productions, and its sponsors. This is Nation Talk. Never know. Yeah. Especially, especially the way they are now. And they're looking at the DMZ. Yeah, I think I mentioned this before. North and South Korea, like right across from each other. The North Koreans can look at look over there by South Korea, and South Korea can look at North Korea. And you never know. DMZ. Yep. How wide is it? I have to. I have to look that up. Yeah, I need. Uh, you do that and let me know what's up. Because I, I don't think it's that far. Uh, no, I so, don't so. think it's that far. Um, and the way this Joker is. Um. Uh, okay, DMZ Korea. Cause uh, my father-in-law, he served. Um, he served. Um, uh, there. Oh yeah. Yeah, my father-in-law did. Oh, 
I had a cousin who was in South Korea. Okay. Because, uh, as you know, know the DMZ is a strip of land running across the Korean Peninsula. Okay, the 38th parallel north is 250 kilometers, 160 miles long, and approximately 4 kilometers or 2.5 miles wide. Okay, that's not too bad. uh, 2.5 miles? Mm Mm-hmm. With two miles apart, two miles wide, that's that's not a lot of space either. So, who's permitted to get into the ZMZ? Nobody. No. Just rabbits, rabbits and squirrels, huh? That's probably that's mainly it. Because <sighs> the human being is gonna get shot. Yeah. That's how that's how close it is, and it, uh, it and it's it says one of the world's dangerous places. Believe yep. me, I I believe them. I you know believe what? them. I just hope that uh, they don't do like the United States did with Russia. The United States had Russia come over to over here. And to inspect our silos and uh, missile places, like down in Redstone in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah. Russian was all up in that place, man. You know what I mean? Mm. But, but now when the United States go to Russia, Russia only showed them one facility. Mm-hmm. And had, had only a couple of old old rockets in there. Mm-hmm. Not, new, not the new stuff. So, you know what I mean? So now, like you say, you never know what North Korea has and where they have it stashed at. I know, and it it's and it's really, really hard to say, because like you said, they only they only show them like just a partial of it uh-huh. of their stuff, but they got some stashed somewhere, somewhere <laughs> in North Korea. I'm. It's hard to say. Now they also they got um, they got one, two, three, four tunnels, and uh, in seventy four South Korea, they discovered four tunnels crossing the DMZ that has been dug by North Korea. The Orientation of the blast lines within each tunnel indicates they were dug by North Korea. North Korea claimed that the tunnels were for coal mining. However, (laughs) no coal was found in the the tunnels, which Uh were dug through granite, granite. Some of the tunnel walls were painted black to give the appearance of uh, an anthracite, A-N-T-H, 
R A C I T E. Hmm. The tunnels are believed to have been planned as a military vision route by North Korea. They run in a north-south direction and do not have branches. Following each discovery, engineering within the tunnels has become progressively direction, directing, director, direction, and do not have okay uh, uh, more advances. For example, mm-hmm. the third tunnel slopes slightly upwards as it progresses southward to prevent water stagnation. Today, visitors from the south may visit the second, third, and fourth tunnels through guided tours. Get out of here. Yeah. Now, the first tunnel, I think that's off limits. The tunnel is about 0.9 by 1.2 miles. Wait, millimeters, which is about three by four feet. Extended more than one kilometer, which is about 0.62 miles between the MDL into Korea. The tunnel was reinforced with concrete stab, slabs and had electric power and lighting. There mm-hmm. were weapon storages and sleeping areas and their gauge railway with carts had also been installed. Estimated based on the tunnel size suggests it have allowed considerably numbers of soldiers to pass through. Hmm. And this was in seven November twentieth of seventy four when when they first discovered the tower, the first tower, or they may say the first the first tower, the second tower, that was discovered in March of seventy five. The following year, is is a similar length to the first tunnel. It is located between fifty and hundred sixty meters which is about 160 and 520 feet below ground. Whoa, that's deep. But Yeah, it is, that's deep. But, but it's larger than the first, uh, approximately 2 by 2 meters, which is about 7 by 7 feet. Wow. Okay, the third, the third tunnel, it was discovered in 78. Unlike the previous two, the third tunnel was discovered following a tip from a North Korean defector. The tunnel is about 1,600 meters, which is uh, 5,200 feet long, and about 70 meters, which is 240 feet below ground. Wow. Foreign villagers, two in the South Korean DMZ may if you inside the tunnel using a slope SS shaft. The fourth tunnel 
was discovered in 1990, March of 1990, north of Hayen, Hayentown, in the former Punchbowl Battlefield. The tunnel's dimensions are 2 by 2 meters, which is about 7 by 7 feet, and is 145 meters, which is a 478. 476 meters, 476 feet deep. Mm. The method of construction is almost identical in structure to the second and third tunnels. Hmm. So they get ready to make an invasion. Even, yeah. Even even after 25 years after the war. Yeah. And they 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 try. More likely, they're being prepared. Just in case, yeah. uh, just in case they say the United States may may uh, pounce on North Korea again. Oh yeah, all right. Uh, it is these. That's, that's some big tunnels. Great day in the morning. They got a joint security area. It's the only position of the north of the of the Korean DMZ where North and South Korea forces stand face to face. It's often called the Truce Village of Pan Panyom in the media and various military accounts. It's like they it's like I see you over there and you see me over here. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Eyeball to eyeball. Eyeball to eyeball. And they call yeah. it they, they call it the JSA. Man. It's hard to believe. Um it's really hard to believe on um Of how of this DMZ, and I heard a lot about the DMZ. Um, I heard a lot about it, and it is really, really scary. Mm, I bet. I mean, you got these two careers looking right at each other. And at any time, and I mean at any time, North Korea, that 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 dude over in North Korea, he could just push a button. For some reason, he like buttons. I don't know why he like pushing buttons. Push the button. Push. He he pushes a button. Rocket goes up, it goes out, and who knows where it's going to hit. Now, wow. and now they got now. I know they got more advanced than they did um, during the Korean conflict. They didn't say this. Yeah, they got more and more advanced as the years go by. They, and folks, it is called. 
is not the Korean War. It's more of a conflict. That's how that's how I was. That's what I was told from a veteran. It was. It is not a war. It was a conflict. Because everybody, uh, thought, everybody to, thought it was a war, but it was it was mostly a conflict. I, I said I wish you could tell that to a few people that that didn't make it back. Yeah. Because um. That that's why that's why that's why I've been told. Um, because actually the United States was there more like we I think they were only there just to just to keep the eye out on things and to keep North Korea away mm-hmm. from South Korea. They're more like the middleman. That that's mainly what they were. That's why they were there to protect South Korea, because South okay. Korea, because North Korea was like going and like now with this nut. <laughs> he he he's he may put he may get mad and said, forget this and just push. Push the button and say forget about it and just. Hmm. Yep. So it is really. Hmm. Uh, to the to, to today's show. I don't know how. Oh, it must have been okay today. Must have been today. Uh, they got a red. They got in a rare, and I mean very rare, look inside North Korea's DMZ. Uh, take a listen to this. Good morning from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, known to you and me as North Korea. We are right on the border with the South. And even here, we are learning that President Trump's rhetoric is having a profound effect. Despite threats of war, nuclear tests, and angry rhetoric between President Trump and North Korea's supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, we met American aid workers who were taking the flight with us to North Korea. Do you feel safe traveling to North Korea? This is like my 50-something trip, um, and uh, we all have families at home. We all want to get back to our families. But here, along the front line between America's ally, South Korea, and the North, there is a permanent sense of danger. They call this the demilitarized zone. It is anything but. Every day, these North Korean troops stare down their American and South Korean counterparts, both sides today, on a hair trigger. That is the border between North and South. This side, socialism, there is where the capitalist world begins. And we're not allowed to stay here for very long. North Korea's vice foreign minister tells NBC News, quote, President Trump's rhetoric is taking them to the brink of war. And in a war, this would be ground zero. And our exchange with a North Korean lieutenant colonel reveals why the two sides, so close at this border, are so far apart. What do you think of President Trump? 
Trump is mentally ill, the guard tells me, and if there is a war with America, we will win. In this closed-off country, the people are hard to read. Some officials we spoke to still hope for peace. All seem braced for war. Now, we should be clear that everywhere we go here, we are being escorted by government minders. I asked one government official, a father with a young son, whether he is scared by what is happening. And you know what he told me? He said that all his life he has felt as if his existence is threatened by America. And he said he believes that North Korea and the North Koreans could survive a nuclear war. Back to you guys. Hmm. What? Did, hey, do you know the implications of a nuclear war? Well, it's a meeting more than two years in the making. We're talking about North Korea and South Korea. We'll get to that story uh, in, well, actually right now. North and South Korea agreeing to meet for high-level talks Tuesday at the Peace House. That's in the DMZ along the border. They plan to discuss a range of topics, including cooperation on next month's Winter Olympics in South Korea and how to improve overall relations. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson told the Associated Press this is a sign the administration's pressure campaign on Pyongyang, he says, is working. This development has come about, the meeting between North-South, we do believe it's an indication that the pressure campaign is, is causing the leadership, the regime in North Korea, to begin to think about this can't go on forever. Well, joining us now for more on this is retired U.S. Army Green Beret Commander Michael Waltz, former counterterrorism advisor to Vice President Cheney and author of Warrior Diplomat and a Fox News contributor. You know, Michael, uh, yeah. it, it kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, how significant do you think it is that there's been this approach that they're both going to sit down and talk? Well, Kim Jong-un mentioned uh, this potential sit-down during his New Year's Day uh, speech, and President Moon of South Korea immediately jumped on it, and, and the back and forth began for them to sit down with talks. Now, there are divides within South Korea about whether this is the best way to move forward. South Korea has a history of progressive presidents, of which uh, President Moon is one of those, that believes the best way to deal with North Korea is to reach out to them, to trade, to open up dialogue. And there are conservatives in uh, South Korea and, there, and many analysts as well that are very nervous about, one, Kim Jong-un's sincerity here, and that, two, President Moon of South Korea will begin making concessions. So there is, there is a real concern, and I share this concern, that Kim Jong-un will use the Olympics as a wedge to begin a dialogue and to begin talks and to get the kind of South Koreans on board while at the same time he continues on the side to march towards a full nuclear capability. Yeah, I certainly would be doing both. That certainly makes sense. Uh, and, yeah. and to use the uh, uh, South Korean Olympics for his own propaganda purposes. Uh, though President Trump right. earlier today, when he said Camp David had that the news conference, he seemed kind of optimistic, despite calling uh, uh, Kim Jong-un rocket man and saying that he would destroy North Korea, if uh, they indeed try to launch any missile against us or our allies. Here's part of what the president said. I hope it works out. I very much want to see it work out between the two countries. I'd like to see them getting involved in the Olympics, and maybe things go from there. Uh, so I'm behind that 100%.
Well, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, one thing they did, and yeah. this seems to be like a big concession to Kim Jong-un, they delayed the joint military exercises that were to be held. That's, that's right. What, that's what, you know, Pyongyang, that's what the Kim Jong-un's regime has always wanted, us to completely suspend those military exercises, and we did it, at least yeah. temporarily. Well, you know, in fairness, General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, said that, that you know, a lot of that had something to do with uh, the logistics of the exercises and, and the timing rather than a concession. Now, look, I think it's, it it's completely – It could be. It could be seen as that. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Kim Jong-un sitting there is going to go, yeah. ha-ha, I won. Look, I did well, it. I think it's completely appropriate for us collectively to take a pause for the Olympics. That's one of the things the Olympics is about is, is kind of clearing the deck of politics and tensions and letting the world's athletes compete in a peaceful uh, manner. But going forward, what I'm concerned about is February 26th, the day after the Olympics, if, if the South Koreans and the United States are not airtight on the same page diplomatically about keeping that pressure up and ratcheting that pressure down and keeping the pressure on the Chinese to cut North Korea off economically, that's where we can see some issues. But for everyone to take a kind of collective pause here from now through the Olympics, I think it's appropriate and it's fine. Well, yeah, that could be the break, uh, any break that they need, although there are yeah. indications that North Korea is preparing another missile launch. Do you expect them to do that during the Olympics, or do you think they would do it, as you said, maybe February 26th? You know, I don't think it, I don't think any of this can be in the can be in the business of predicting Kim Jong Un. That's one of the reasons he's so unpredictable and, in my view, not a rational actor. That's why we can't let them get this uh, program in the first place. But again, I think we focus on what's next after, and it is having preconditions for more meaningful talks. When I served in the Bush White House, I witnessed the six-party talks, and and frankly, I think a number of things were a number of mistakes were made there to where the, uh, the Kim Jong-un regime, the North Korean regime, just completely used that process to buy time to advance like, like military capability. Like what mistake? Well, I think taking them off the, uh, I think taking them off the um, uh, state support to terrorists list was a mistake. I think we gave too much when it was clear that the uh, North Korean regime were going to reject U.N. sanctions inspections and not abide by its end of the agreement. And I think we put our, you know, kind of lifted uh, pressure far too soon to where we could have been further along now if we had maintained a maximum pressure campaign. That said, the Obama administration just completely took its foot off the gas, well, you know what, and we are where we are, and the President Trump has been handed uh, this mess to deal with. Well, I mean, he's got the mess, and then look what he said today. He said he's be, he would be willing to talk to Kim Jong-un. Let me get a reaction to that. This is what he said. Okay. Now, yeah, I remember this was during the Olympics at that time when he was when you're talking about during the um, South Korean when during South Korean uh, Olympics. David today. Are you willing to engage in phone talks with Kim Jong Un right now? Sure, I always believe in talking. Do you think that? president pick up or answer the phone from Kim? Look, I think the president's absolutely right to always leave the back door open for uh, for diplomatic talks, but it has to be the conditions, and the North Koreans have to give up their nuclear program on the front end before we sit down. There's the... Hmm. Well, it all remains to be seen of what's going to happen. So... Um,
it's more like a wait and see now. Find out what's going how it's gonna how this is gonna how this is gonna happen. But in my opinion, I don't trust North Korea. I don't trust her. I really don't. They're too sneaky. And this guy, Kim, is very unpredictable.
The school's financial administrator contacted the Christian Law Association for advice concerning how to handle the financial records of 14- and 15-year-old students who work for the school. One of our attorneys explained that the minors should be treated exactly the same as the college students. Our attorney then advised the administrator to remember that minors are limited by federal employment law to less than 18 hours of work per week when school is in session. That's attorney David Gibbs, Jr. of the Christian Law Association. And you can continue today's dialogue by exploring the resources waiting for you at our website, christianlaw.org. You can sign up for our free monthly newsletter or connect with an attorney at christianlaw.org. christianlaw.org.
Mr. Sam Radio Network with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. The views, the opinions of Nature Talk are not necessarily the views of TalkShoe, Jam Radio Production, and sponsors. This is Nature Talk. Welcome to the second half of Nation Talk. Yeah, the question still remains. Do we still um it's gonna it's going and it, it, believe it or not, it's gonna um um your know, big question even 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 after this if we trust no free of and if they are actually going to um, keep their nukes, or they're not going to, well, you know, not keep. Well, we know they're going to keep. We know they're going to keep the nukes, but are they going to stockpile it, or what are they going to do with it? Speaking of, speaking of what they're going to do, what will Putin do with six more years of power? As you all know, Putin has been re-elected as Russian's president. The final tally shows that he crushed the rivals with 77% of the 77% of the March 18th vote. Yes, there is evidence that Putin rigged. The election to a degree. <laughs> now this is coming from um, the Philadelphia Trumpet. I get this. Um, it's a bi-monthly magazine, and I, I get this. I get it. Um, I get this magazine um, every two months, so it. Like I said, it's a bi-weekly, it's a bi-weekly magazine, and it has a lot of interesting stuff, stuff that's going on right now. During Putin's first eight years, Russia's in, industry increased by 76%, and investments grew by 125%. Your incomes of Russian citizens grew, grew by over one, excuse me, over 100 per. Putin has confirmed our suspicions that he is a dictator bent on maintaining his power at all costs. So we 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 pretty much know where he where his head at. And uh, China's great leap toward to a strong strong man rule. Uh, Chinese leader uh, power grab uh, grab places the might of the world's most populous nation in the in, in the hands of one ambiguous ambitious man. Hmm. These are just headlines. I'm just giving you like the headlines. Of course, as you know about the trade wars, 
between us and them. In 1984, the liberal left left midstream. The um, the article is, in here is is a uh, actually the cover story. America saving America from the radical left. And this story this is from um, Gerald Fleury. Uh, the drama the drama unfolding in Washington is something you cannot afford to ignore. We are witnessing a government and a nation on the verge of collapse. Liberty of liberals and academica, the media, and in government don't believe governing officers should be restricted by limitations imposed by the Constitution. America's founders imposed those restrictions to prevent tyranny. And, of course, the popular shooting, the shocking story you have not heard. Uh, this kid, his name was Nicholas Cruz. He got arrested. Well, he was the one, he was the, the shooter in this, in this, in that, in that uh, shooting in Parkland. It's a tragic story. Uh, seems like everything is connected to. It's it's. I again, like I said, I'm not against. I'm not against um. The the right to bear arms, but darn. Protecting yourself, sure. I believe that you should be, that you should protect yourself. But these shootings and these these school shootings and these shootings that have been going on has been ridiculous. Um. Oh, and by the way, the the news. Of the execution, and y'all may have to help me on this. And I, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to remember this. Um, gosh, I can't remember now. Uh, has been executed after after so many years of. Oh man, I can't remember now. Uh, golly. <laughs> it, it's hard to rely on your own memory. Um, execution. Uh, gosh. I'm trying, I'm trying to remember... The death row, the young man, uh, oh man, maybe this is, 
Mike, I don't know if you can remember now. It they had an extra and, and it slipped it's on it slipped my mind and I can't remember who it is. Uh what happened? He got he was executed for killing after oh gosh, what after killing after so many years and killing somebody that he got executed. Um that was recently? I don't... It was recently. Yeah, it was just recently. Hmm. I can't remember now. If that... Couple, it, if that got executed, right? Yeah. Um, this person got executed not too long, not sometime this week. After... Oh, uh, like, and, this week? What, what was the crime, though? What was the crime? Maybe shake up my memory, too. Uh, for killing, it was after so many years. He's on death row for so many years for killing someone. And he, he, stayed, in, he stayed in there. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, you oh, got my goodness. Ah. I'm 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 looking through. The, I'm going on the internet now to try to find it. Um, right. I can't remember now. All right, don't worry about it. But uh, anyway, after almost after so many years, um, he they've been dead that so many years, and they finally and I I said after all this time they finally execute this guy. What kind of state was this? I believe it was. I believe it was here in Georgia. I think. Well, it was what do you expect? <laughs> what do you think? It, anywhere down south? Um, in Georgia, Virginia, somewhere. Um, well, Georgia and Alabama good for executing, man. Oh yeah, because they used to they used to use old Sparky. Hmm. They don't use Sparky anymore. Sparky's been he's retired now. Um Will they do the lethal injection? Yeah, they do lethal injection here in Georgia. Um Anytime you execute electrocute a twelve year old kid, you sorry. You know what? I think that's that's where the rapper guy is gonna come back and jack up a whole lot of people, man. Yeah. Oh well, God be merciful. I mean, it 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 is uh, unfortunate, and I, I'm against the death penalty anyway. Um, I'm not. <laughs> but that's we, understandable. You know, that's okay. But like I said, the each is on. But I'm I'm not against the death penalty because it is a thing. Whereas. It's ordained, but it has to be. It has to be one of those situations where, it's to me, is like you got to be for real in the crime. Like there's with beyond a shadow of a doubt, and witnesses. If if, if, I, if, a, if a person go up and kill somebody, and he got a hundred witnesses, he he go go into a crowd and just shoot somebody, 
he's supposed to get smoked. Mm. But if he if he go and somebody and kill somebody, and he gets away, and you try to run down the evidence and get all confused, and somebody, oh well, somebody half blind. Uh, well, I recognize him. No, he ain't supposed to die. Okay, I found it. I found it. I found it. I found it. Walter Leroy Moody was 83. Um, 83 years old? Yeah. Package bomber. He was executed in Alabama. I was here here when this happened. Alabama has executed Walter Leroy Moody, 83, the oldest U.S. inmate to be put to death in modern times. The execution occurred Thursday evening after a temporary delay because of a pending U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Moody's final appeal. Moody was convicted in the 1996 in 1996 in a, in a December 1989 package bombing that killed a federal judge and was originally scheduled to die Thursday evening at 6 p.m. Central Daylight Time. The nation's highest court issued the the state state order Thursday evening on behalf of Moody as is considered the request to block the lethal injection procedure. Moody became became the oldest inmate to put to death since, since since execution resumed in the U.S. in the 1970s, according to the Death Penalty Information Center, his attorneys did not raise his basis age in legal filing filings, but argued in a clemency uh, petition to Alabama's governor that his age and health complies the lethal injection procedure. It is not uncommon for the court to to temporarily stay an execution as is considered an inmate final final appeal. Hmm. Uh, uh, Appeals. Moody argued that his federal sentence of multiple life sentences could not be interrupted by the state of Alabama. Oh, well. How old was he? 83. Okay. The court, uh, the court denied Moody's, Moody's request Wednesday was the same victim one of his victims was a member of nearly 30 years ago. The U.S. 11th Circuit of Appeals Judge Robert Vance Sr. was in his home in Mountain, Mountain, Brook, Mountain Brook, Alabama, nine days before Christmas in 1989 when he opened a package that Moody had mailed to him, authority said. The blast from the package instantly killed Vance and severely injured his wife, Helen, they said. 
the, at, <laughs> at his 1996 trial, prosecutors described Moody as a meticulous coward who committed murder by mail because of his obsession with getting revenge on the legal system and then committed more bombings to make it look like the Ku Klux Klan was behind the judge's murder. Uh, Prosecutors said Moody, who had attended law school, had a grudge against the legal system because the 11th Circuit refused to overturn a 1972 pipe bomb possession conviction that prevented him from practicing law. Now, this is where I remember. I know it was when I say it was in Georgia. This is this is why it happened in Georgia. A similar device linked to Moody killed Robert E. Robinson, a black civil rights attorney from Savannah, Georgia. Two other mail bombs were were later intercepted and, and refused, including one at the NWCP office in Jacksonville, Florida. Authorities said those bombs were meant to make investigators think the crime were racially motivated. That's what oh. I could, that's what I remember. It was Robin Robinson. He was uh he was an attorney here at Stana. Um it was a few days before Christmas as a matter of fact. And he he had a package, he opened the package and he died instantly in, in that result. As a matter of fact, it's not it's just about um about three four maybe five six blocks from where where we are now. Hmm. This happened and I I was here in Savannah when it happened. I was still here when it happened. So, uh, so he got he charged on multiple multiple killing then. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, the judge up in Alabama, um, Robbie Robinson here in Savannah, um, the Jacksonville office in in, in WCP office in Jacksonville. Uh, he, he he was doing that to to to, to make it look like it was um, to make it look like it was the Ku Klux Klan with their hands on it, but it was actually him. And a kill, and this happened. Oh gosh, it this this happened in nineteen. I can, I can find it because I, I like I said I remember it so well. Um, I've never I have not met Attorney Robinson. I think I've seen him maybe once. I seen him. Yeah, black or white? Black. Oh okay. I I've seen him maybe once. I've made I probably talked to him. Maybe I think I spoke to him, 
Uh-huh. Mainly it, but I never, you know, never, never actually know him personally. Uh, um, I don't know him personally, but um, he. He was he was a NWCP he was a he was a NWCP lawyer and um I wonder how did they find the uh prove that the, the this guy really did it. They they actually They they found him. They 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 connected. Um. They 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 found out. They found they found it. How? I don't know. But they actually. FBI FBI is pretty good like that though. Oh yeah, the FBI is. They're really they're really really good at what they do. Um. They, they, they did a wonderful job in doing this investigation and investigating of what happened. Now, now my memory has been jogged. <laughs> it was I now remember it was a pipe bomb. Well, more like a um. No, well, not a pipe bomb, but a package. One of those package bombs. And this is like, okay. and this is like one of many, um, one of many bomb bomb killings they had during that time. And it was terrible. I mean, it was tough. They, they um, mail bombings especially. It that was really terrible. Um, they, I'm talking to you and trying to get, I'm trying to find the, uh, stuck of find, okay, Bobby Robinson, Salamis dead. Well, anyway, now that I'm a jog, my, my movie's been jogged now, because, uh, okay. uh, I knew it happened this week, and when I first saw that, I'm going, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Did they, after all this time, they they finally going to execute him after all this time? Okay. Ah. Oh. Okay, yeah, I found it for the Saturday morning news. Yep, yep that was him, all right. Robbie Robinson paid the price for Savannah dis- desegregation. 
he was uh he was forty two when he died. It was nineteen it was December eighteenth, nineteen eighty nine. In his Abercorn Street in, on, on his Abercorn Street um office mm. and that's when it happened and, it, and uh, the guy Moody here he was he obtained 70 account and in, indictments against there was 70 count indictments against him at the time he was 56 when he did this and finally, after sixty, seventy, eighty, after thirty years, they finally they finally execute him after all this time. Mm-hmm. And again, and again, he probably and again he was probably trying to um, appeal too, trying to make an appeal at that time. So they had a, a memorial service in in his honor. And his memory um, of what um, of what happened, and it was big news at the time here. And his office was like just up the street from what WTOC WTOC TV was. It wasn't. It was. There were just a few blocks. Up from them, in fact, you could see the big antenna. You could see the the the, the news antenna, and it's off from it from from the office. As a matter of fact, you walk on that corner, you can see it. <laughs> you can see you can see the old WTOC building, but his office wasn't that far wasn't that far from it. He was a very smart man. He um. He was one of twelve seniors to take that um, enter into. He was one of yeah. He was one of twelve seniors to enter an all-white Savannah High School, September third, nineteen sixty-three. He made history. Hmm. He made history here, and they had like two other. All white schools at that time that did not allow um, that did not allow blacks to at at first, but 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 back in '63 it was desegregated. Yeah. Girls High School, Amsterdam High School. And I even, I even heard uh, even heard from an old film that. Dr. King even said and he came here he came here as well that this Savannah is the most segregated city deseg I think he said desegregated or segregated or desegregated city he ever he's ever been to. Um because of what these kids at that time did. When they went to Girls High School, which is an all-white school, and Savannah High School, which is an all-white school. Uh-huh. So, they, so they paid, they um, 
they were the first ones to walk to become students there, and I could just imagine. Oh, I just could imagine how how it was. Um, then. So. That's what that's what happened then. That was that's what happened then. I, I, oh yeah, a quick. Oh yeah, let me say a quick. And I better do this before I go off the air. A quick happy birthday to my mom. Yeah, uh, happy birthday. Yeah, I, I already called in and told her happy birthday. So I just uh, uh, I called her a couple of days before because. Knowing her, she'd probably be out and about today <laughs> with the other children. So I, that's why I'm doing that real quick one, real real quick. <laughs> and of course, as you all know, and I'm 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 trying to see. I'm and I'm I'm wondering what time is going to be when. Our American princess gets married to Prince William, which is going to be like 6 o'clock in the morning here, and it'll probably be like sometime during the evening. It's four, four hours difference over there. Yeah. The five, four to five hours difference. Yeah. So it's going to be, because I remember when Princess Diana got married, I, I stayed up and I... I got up and I watched as much as I could. Yeah, it, yeah. It was very, it was a very beautiful wedding, and I think uh-huh. I did the same thing with um, um, Harry. Uh, you know, is it Harry? No, Harry's getting married. Uh, William, when William got married, I did. The, we did the same thing. Um, but if Princess Diana was still living. She has been very, very proud of her son. Very, very proud. Because she does, she, some of the charities that she's involved in, that Miss um, Marco is involved in, her mom uh, pretty much is involved as well, and so is, and so is her son. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So they... It's gonna be in May. I can't remember what day in May, but it's gonna be it's gonna be in May, and that's gonna be history in the making. Is, is that the one that she got like a she half white or something? Yeah. Oh, okay. And during the wedding, the print, um, his, his grandmother said that he will become a duke, and she will become a duchess. Oh, she will. Ooh, she will be me. a duchess. Huh. Yeah, hold on. Speaking of America's of America's very own, pay tribute to Baba Bush, former first lady. This is Nation Talk. 
In times like these, strangers at your door should be treated cautiously, but unwelcome strangers in your home can be your worst nightmare. Home invasion is a form of armed robbery where criminals break into homes through unlocked or open doors and windows. They even trick people into opening their doors to confront victims face-to-face. They can be after money and valuables, threaten personal assault, or take members of the family captive. But you can be proactive against these disturbing attacks. Learn how to protect yourself against home invasions. Never open the door to strangers. Secure your home with high-security locks and quality door and window hardware. Consider a home security system and even a dog. It's also a good idea to devise an action plan for your family in case intruders ever do enter your home. To learn more about how to keep your home safe from intruders, visit ncpc.org. That's ncpc.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Justice, National Crime Prevention Council, and the Ad Council. To buy your home, you became a house hunting ace, learned about loans, scoured neighborhoods, and asked the right questions. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. The Internet is a wonderful resource for kids. But in times like these, the Internet can also increase your child's risk of being a victim of crime. Instruct your child to never give out personal information, like their name, address, or school name without your approval. Teach them about frauds and scams that often appear as friendly emails or offers that are too good to be true. Place your computer where you can see what your child is doing. Use software that prevents access to inappropriate sites and chat rooms. Teach your child what to do if they come across such sites or receive solicitations from strangers. Learn how they're using the Internet and how much time they're spending on it. Let's keep our kids as safe in the cyber world as we try to do in the real one. Visit ncpc.org to learn more about how we can protect our children. That's ncpc.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Justice, National Crime Prevention Council, and the Ad Council. She was a wife and mother to presidents, but a lack of pretension and a sense of humor that could be self-deprecating were what endeared Barbara Bush to the American people. She stood out in a crowd with a shock of white hair that earned her the family nickname Silver Fox. It was part of Barbara Bush's determination to be herself, as she recalled in 2004 for a PBS documentary. Who's jealous of an overweight, white-haired woman? Nobody. So I think that was in my benefit, in a way. 
The future first lady was born Barbara Pierce in New York City in 1925 to Marvin and Pauline Pierce. Her father was president of the McCall Corporation of Red Book and McCall Magazine fame. The family lived in Rye, New York, where Barbara grew up with three siblings. From there, she went off to Smith College. But in 1945, she dropped out to marry George Bush, who was on leave from the Navy. They had met four years earlier. The couple moved to Texas in 1948 with their first child, a son, George W. He was soon joined by a sister, Robin. But she developed leukemia and died at the age of three, a tragedy that reshaped the family. Three other children followed, and Barbara went on to oversee a total of 27 moves as her husband's career took him around the world. From Texas, where he built his fortune in the oil fields, to politics and public life. In the 1960s and 70s, Barbara was by his side for two losing U.S. Senate bids, a winning campaign for a U.S. House seat, and stints as U.N. ambassador, chair of the Republican Party, and CIA director. In 1980, he ran for president and ultimately ended up as Ronald Reagan's running mate. As a political spouse, Barbara Bush's wry sense of humor endeared her to many, but she later acknowledged it didn't suit everyone. Well, I tried to behave myself, but I'm a little impulsive. So occasionally I said things I was sort of sorry I said, but I think I believed them. That tendency caused her trouble in 1984, when she referred to Geraldine Ferraro, the Democratic vice presidential nominee, as something that, quote, rhymes with rich. Mrs. Bush quickly apologized. She remained plain-spoken after her husband won the White House for himself in 1988. Right from the start, the new first lady set a new tone, downplaying fashion, for instance, in sharp contrast with her predecessor, Nancy Reagan. Please notice the hair, the makeup, designer clothes. And remember... You may never see it again. In 1989, she even wore camouflage gear on a trip to Saudi Arabia during the first Gulf War to visit with U.S. troops at Thanksgiving. Mrs. Bush also made dogs a fixture in the first family's life. Millie, their Springer Spaniel, had the run of the White House. Millie produced a famous litter of puppies displayed before the Washington Press Corps when they were just a few days old. In time, Mrs. Bush was inspired to write a best-selling children's work titled Millie's Book. She reminisced about it in 2012 at the George W. Bush Presidential Library. And she made over a million dollars for charity. As George says, I worked all my life got the highest job maybe in the world, and my dog made more money. <laughs> Writing her own book was just part of a larger campaign for literacy in America. Barbara Bush took an active role in several literacy organizations, including the one she founded. Remember, we have a new baby in the house. I have now spent more than 25 years promoting family literacy, as I truly believe 
that being able to read, write, and comprehend is one of the keys to a very successful, happy life, and that a literate society is important to keeping our country safe and strong. But when it came to her husband's presidency, the first lady turned political fighter. She staunchly defended his failed re-election bid in 1992 in a NewsHour interview at the Republican National Convention. What's the matter with Americans? You are in the best shape of any country in the world. Don't Americans know that when you achieve peace, it costs money? Peace is costly. We ought to be willing to pay for the fact that we go to bed every single night of our life freer and safer because of George Bush. Things are turning, Judy, and they're coming to a strong economy. But we're going to have to all work for it. But it's because we have peace, and we ought to be darn grateful to George Bush. Eight years later, she was back campaigning again, this time for her son, George W. Bush, in his 2000 presidential run. Here she was in New Hampshire. Thank you for all you're doing for our boys. And in 2016, she campaigned yet again in New Hampshire with another son, Jeb, as he made his ultimately failed bid for the Republican nomination. It's great to be back in New Hampshire. People have good values. Mrs. Bush made one of her last public appearances in March with her husband and presidential scholars in College Station, Texas. Campaigner, literacy advocate, first lady, mother and wife, and as her family described Barbara Bush, their linchpin. Barbara Bush was 92 years old. In Dallas today, her eldest child, President George W. Bush, opened up about his family's loss. He sat down with the PBS Public Affairs Show in principle, hosted by Amy Holmes and Michael Gerson, who earlier served as one of the younger President Bush's speechwriters. Mr. Bush began by discussing his father and how he was mourning. I'm very appreciative of the outpouring of uh, sympathies, particularly for my dad, you know, at age 93, he's going to miss mother. And after all, they were married for 73 years. I'm comfortable with her passing because she was comfortable with her passing. And she told me point blank, I do not fear death. I know there's a loving God. And uh, I told my, our daughters and my, some of my brothers, I said, wow, what a beautiful, beautiful uh, lesson. I don't want to sound cavalier, but I truly am at peace. And I, I feel very blessed. And uh, uh, plus my mother, I can just hear her saying, get on with your life and do something good. <laughs> what advice did your mom give you about being president of the United States? Uh, keep your eye on the ball. Uh, keep your nose to the grindstone. Uh, and I told her that's a hell of a position to be in. <laughs> <laughs> a little awkward. <laughs> yeah. People ought to psychobabble about my relationship with my parents during the presidency, and it's natural because people haven't had a chance to ask many presidents what's it like to be president with your father being a former president and mother a former first lady. And the most uh, important thing they told me was, son, I love you and we're proud of you, which is the most important thing any parent can tell a child. So, Mr. President, did you have a chance to say goodbye to your mom? I did, yeah. Lauren, I went over and saw her at the hospital. She was doing pretty well, slightly feisty still, mm -hmm. which is a good sign. And uh, she and I used to kind of needle each other in a friendly way. And then the doctor walked in to this hospital room, and Mother said, do you want to know why George W. is the way he is, doctor? And doctor 
didn't have any choice. And uh, mother said, because I drank and smoked when I was pregnant with him. <laughs> <laughs> and so <laughs> I knew she was feeling pretty good. And then a week later, she went downhill. She she chose no, uh, didn't want to have any life-sustaining care. Uh, she was ready to move. And they made her comfortable, and I called her yesterday when I had the sense that she was ready to go. She couldn't talk back, but I told her how much I loved her. And uh, my brothers and sisters did the same thing, and then she was by Dad's side. Interestingly enough, uh, he sat there for, you know, four or five hours, I'm told, and a preacher came in and read the Bible, and my brother Neil read Mom's Memoirs. So it's a sweet scene when you think about it. And, you know, she's had a, she had a very fortunate life and a very fortunate end in many ways. And you can watch the full interview this Friday night at 8.30 on the PBS program In Principle. And in a statement, the elder President Bush said, quote, I always knew Barbara was the most beloved woman in the world. And, in fact, I used to tease her that I had a complex about that fact. We have faith that she is in heaven, and we know life will go on as she would have it. So cross the bushes off your worry list. And now for a deeper look at the former First Lady's life, I'm joined by C. Boyden Gray, who was White House counsel to President George H.W. Bush and remains a close personal friend to the Bush family. The Reverend Bonnie Steinroder, who served as the pastor at the church in Kenny Bunkport that the Bush family attended during their summers in Maine. And Susan Page, White House bureau chief for USA Today and the author of the upcoming book, The Matriarch, Barbara Bush and the Making of an American Dynasty, which will be out next year. And thank you all three for joining us. We do appreciate it. Borden Gray, I'm going to start with you. It's so remarkable to me. We just heard both Presidents Bush comments from them, one saying, we're comfortable with this. She was comfortable with her passing. We heard uh, President H.W. Bush say, cross the bushes off your worry list. That tells you a lot about her and about her family, doesn't it? It says a great deal. She went out the way she lived her life. She did it her way. She did it honestly. She did it straightforwardly. It was a great way, a dignified way to, to, to go. And those of us who work with them feel so lucky to have been exposed to such to such love and, and, and strength. Susan, you've been working on this book, which we mentioned about uh, Barbara Bush's coming out next year. And I, I was struck one of the things you said, well, you said you've been struck by how she was often misperceived, underestimated by people. What did you mean by that? Well, one of the reasons I thought she deserved uh, biography is that people had, I think, a perception of her as a warm grandmother and a, and a very soft, the national grandmother uh, with the white hair and the, and the big pearls. And that's true that she's a warm grandmother, but she was also pretty sharp. She had great political instincts. She did not hesitate to express herself and her opinions to her, her husband and her sons. Uh, and I think she was influential in the White House in a way that people perhaps didn't understand. It's not that she took over health care like mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, but she was a voice in the ear of her husband and her son on what mattered, on what to focus on, and on who to trust. She could spot a phony a mile away. Pastor Steinroder, you met the Bushes when you were, uh, you had just begun, I think, uh, working at the, the, the church in Kennebunkport, and you said uh, it was right after 9-11, and you said Mrs. Bush came over to you, made a point of coming over to you. Talk about that, about her. 
Well, so it was a Sunday after 9-11. I had been scheduled to give my call sermon at the church where I would preach, everybody would vote on me. 9-11 happened on that Tuesday, so I ripped up my sermon. I showed up my first time in this church. I was so nervous. I look out in the pews, and there is the president's parents, you know, President George Bush, Barbara Bush. So I don't remember what I said. I just preached the best I could. And afterwards, she came up to me, and she hugged me, and she said, your words so comforted me. I'm so glad you're our new pastor. And what I realized in that moment, it wasn't me who had comforted her. She was comforting me. And I feel like that set the tone for our whole relationship. And you told us that you went on to have a great friendship with them. Boyd and Gray, I want to come back to you. I mean, there's so many parts of her life that are really interesting. I want to go back to what Susan was saying about, about Barbara Bush's influence in the White House on her husband. How did you see that? Well, she, she was on top of everything. She didn't get involved, as Susan said, in individual policies, except very, very rarely. But she knew everything. She was politically very, very astute. And if she thought staff was not serving her husband well or that somebody was cutting corners, she would let it be known quietly but strongly. And no one ever messed around uh, when she was watching. So she was an enormous uh, uh, watchdog for him, and she was an enormous tower of strength. She never flinched. She never blinked. And she always supported him to the fullest. It was a remarkable uh, partnership that they had. Susan, how would you, what's an example of that? And I also want to ask you about, you, you talked to us about the difficult, the painful times that she went through, and often we didn't have any idea that that was going on. You know, it's true. She, she is, uh, came from a very uh, exalted uh, lineage. Uh, she had a, a direct ancestor come over on the Mayflower. She's a distant cousin to the 14th president, uh, Franklin Pierce. Um, and, of course, she had lived a life of privilege and position. Uh, but she had uh, the grief and pain that uh, people have in their lives. Uh, she lost a daughter to leukemia. She had a battle with depression in 1975. She told me she contemplated suicide at that time. Uh, she was diagnosed with Graves' disease soon after becoming First Lady. That was something that, uh, that caused her great difficulty uh, up to the, forever, until the end of her life. Uh, but in ways that she never, you know, she never complained, at least she never complained in public, she was very, she was stoic, and she told me that the struggle with depression, for instance, mm. gave her, which a lot of people weren't aware of. Weren't aware of. She disclosed it in her memoirs. People didn't know about it at the time. Her struggle with depression gave her an empathy for people who were having trouble, and that she had previously thought, just work your way out of it, just power through, and she came to learn that you really need sometimes to seek help, and she said she wished at that point she had done that. And, and Pastor Steinroder, you saw that in her, didn't you? I totally saw that in her. When Susan was saying in the beginning that people kind of misunderstood her, she was, um, yeah, she was strong and smart and kind and funny and all of those things. And I received her love. I also was scolded by her more than one time. And she just had the biggest heart and was a very compassionate and generous person. And I would just want to add you know, a lot of people will help you if you go and ask. Barbara Bush never waited to be asked. She looked around to see where the need was, and then she stepped into that need to help other people, which is one thing that, for me, made her so unique and special. Pastor Steinroder, I want to stay with you for just a moment because it, it, one of the things you talked to us about was how 
you at some point, you, they, they invited you to many events at their home in Kennebunkport, and often you were the only Democrat there, or there would be Democrats with Republicans. How did you observe the partisanship around them? They were the most non, I know it sounds funny to say, they were the most nonpartisan people I've ever met. I mean, they knew that I was a Democrat. They never brought it up. They were friends with everybody. Their events were people like Olympia Snow, you know, former senator of Maine, what I took to be some fundraisers and my husband and I. But everyone got along. And, again, um, they were just so generous in spirit. And as their pastor, I can say, they took very seriously their Christian calling to help their neighbor, to love their neighbor as themselves. And their neighbor didn't have red or blue or man or woman or whatever station you were in life. They picked their friends. They helped people because they were loving and they cared. Baba Bush, she was 92. All right. Uh, Here's a story that 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 you shocked me. One of the world's richest cities now filthier than a world third world slum. San Francisco, California, is one of the world's richest cities. Yet its streets are filthy. NBC <laughs> Bay Area spent three days. In February, surveying downtown San Francisco, walking 20 miles across 153 city blocks, reporters found trash on every block, 100 discarded drug needles, and 303 piles of human waste. Dr. <laughs> Lee Rowley who co-authored a 2016 book on health in slums, said the containment levels is in in some areas of San Francisco might now be the worst than certain slums in Brazil, Kenya, and in India. San Francisco now spends $30 million of its $60 million, um, million dollar annual public works budget on cleaning the, uh, cleaning the streets, including depositing and disposing of 12,000 needles per month. Public Works Director Mohammed Nur said it's not just about sweeping and washing down and cleaning. We have a social problem that uh, that we need to solve. End of quote. San Francisco, one of the filthiest city. That is a shocker. That is a very bad shocker. <laughs> and I've been there. But, I never been to San. I haven't been to San Francisco, but I've been to L.A. Um, um, wow. I could I could imagine 
I can just imagine Death Row. I mean, not Death Row. Not Death Row. Um, over the west, when in, in L.A., where they have the a lot of the poor there, and homeless, some and a lot of the homeless there. Uh, it's probably, and I can imagine it, that place is probably cleaner than some parts of San Francisco, the, the slum areas of San Francisco. Hmm. Well, you know what San Francisco is known for, right? Hmm? You know what San Francisco is known for? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The gay revolution. Yep. And that's from a long time ago. Oh, yeah. So, how you said filth follows filth. Yep. Even even gives... Even give, it, it makes it makes San Francisco look look bad. Yep. It makes San Francisco look really bad. It's in the, in the, it's the city by at by the bay. Lord have mercy. Hey, and you know that, something else too? Yeah. I'm afraid I'm afraid Atlanta Georgia is gonna is gonna follow suit if if they don't hurry up and get their act together. I know. It, it's it's um and and Savannah I mean I mean Atlanta is so um populated it's heavily populated right now it has a lot of people in that yep. city in that one city and it's it's getting to be it's getting to start to be crowded Savannah has that problem as well. But it's like in isolated. It's mostly in isolated places, in some isolated places, not like in one area. Right. But it's in certain areas of Savannah that has it. They got we got our eyesores with the buildings, the abandoned buildings. We got our homeless. Um, not too far where I, where, where I go to church. Well, when my wife and I go to church, right? It's they call it they call it the bridge, but it's it's, uh, it's really an underpass. The a lot of, there's some homeless folks that that um, stay over there. There's some that do stay over there. And one thing about it, it's it's a cool area because there's a lot of trees around it. Um, they're trying to do something with the homelessness here in Savannah. They're making some progress, but there's still more work to do. Oh, okay. There's still a lot still a lot more work to do. Hmm. Um it's like I said, it's it's in isolated places but not like in one like in one place. Uh you can kinda you can kinda tell the places where there's, where there's homelessness here in Savannah, but not like in San Francisco. Good Lord, I can't believe it. Yep. And 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 
area I was telling about in L.A., I guarantee it's, but it's probably it's. I walked through there. I, I actually, I actually walked through there that area, and it's it, it it's um it's it's interest it's interesting. In fact, I did remember, I think I did a, a program on it um some years back on it. It's in the archives, folks. Uh, about this, about it. Skit roll, therefore skit roll. I actually wrote, I actually walked through skit roll in the day, and I and I went through it at night. And it's it's it's, it's interesting.
And then, God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Till we meet again.